You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Weisenberg writes the Orange Et blog at orangeet.blogspot.com. Her first book is A Homemade Life, Stories and Recipes from My Kitchen Table. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Sure. Molly, this is a really interesting book because it's not just a cookbook, nor is it really the story of your life. It's really a, a book about how to live. Yeah, I, I guess you could think of it that way. I think for me, food is really never just food. It's it's always a way of getting at something else. I think it's a very tangible way of getting at things that are intangible, at getting, of, getting at connections between people, getting at who we are and who we want to be, where we come from. And yeah, I wanted to bring all of that into this book. Now, as a cook, you started out in your childhood, you, you had a lot of education about hook cooking. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the importance of having parents who let you cook when you're a kid. Oh, I, I think for me, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here with you if, if that were not the case. I really grew up in a household where food was how we spent time together. And I really didn't even know that that was an unusual thing until, you know, I was old enough to kind of see that these, you know, that my friends' families were not as obsessed with food as we were. I mean, when we, you know, on holidays, my family was all in the kitchen together and Every night I sat down to dinner with my parents, and when we were on vacation together, it was all about where are we going to eat next, and it was really, it was such a central thing in our lives. It was, it was really the, the air I grew up breathing, and, um, and yeah, I think that it's, you know, the way that I've always made meaning of, of my life. Now, you went, you thought about going to cooking school, didn't you? Tell us a little bit about your education, because it's, it's interesting. In a way, I think you became a professional student of life. <laughs> Well, that's nice of you. Thank you. I think of myself as actually a grad school quitter, but it's worked out for me. I um, I did think about going to, to cooking school when I was in college. I was studying human biology with a focus on AIDS from a social perspective. I was kind of taking an anthropological look at AIDS. Uh, but all the time, I was really fascinated with cooking, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And I actually tried interning in a restaurant and discovered that it, it just wasn't for me, that food for me was about sitting down at the table with people, not about just making it in a kitchen and then handing it over to a waiter. And so I, I continued on with college and um, wound up getting that degree in human biology and a minor in French and then went on to do a master's in cultural anthropology. And I was supposed to do a PhD, except that I said, no, no, enough of this. I have to find a way to focus on food. How did you find that way? What, what did you do next? Um, it felt like a huge leap at the time. And I, I felt like I was leaving this very, you know, I felt like anthropology was, um, was this really valid, credible thing that I was going to be doing. And I felt like I was leaving to, to do something so frivolous, to focus on food, which seemed like this, just this um, hobby of mine. And it, it was this hobby that brought me so much joy that I really felt like I needed to pay attention to that, that I was coming home at the end of the day from grad school. And, and really, all I wanted to do was to cook my dinner or think about what cake I could bake over the weekend when I had more time. And um, 
I happened to be in Paris in the summer of 2004 doing some research for graduate school. Mm -hmm. And about a week into it, uh, I just sat myself down and said, Molly, this is crazy. You're filling your research notebook with addresses for bakeries, and you're spending all of your free time reading cookbooks. You, you have to pay attention to this. So I decided a week into that research trip that I was going to leave grad school without my PhD. And you found yourself in Paris doing what? I mean, how did you make a living? <laughs> well, at that point, I had um, I had been there as a student mm -hmm. um, a couple of years prior. I'd been there uh, when I was in college. And then I went back, actually, after college for a year. And that was where I had my first apartment and my first job. I was teaching English conversation in a French high school. And I also worked a little bit at um, one of the local outdoor markets. I was selling different different types of oils, olive oils and nut oils. And then when I went back in 2004, I thought I was there to do research on the French social security system. Uh, but I now understand that I, I think my whole reason for being in grad school at all was kind of an excuse to get back to Paris. Tell us about Paris. I mean, it's it's a uh, much written about city. What kept you there? What drew you there? And, and why did you start writing about it? I think for me, it, it's it's kind of, um, I guess there are lots of, of ways of answering that question. Part of it is that uh, my father, actually both of my parents, loved Paris. Um, they took me there for the first time when I was 10. And I have particularly strong memories of, of my father on that trip. He had spent some time in Paris in the 60s and um, and really knew the city well and just had this giddy affection for it. It was just, you know, it was like he could not wait to, to introduce it to me. And, um, and so I think I really loved it from the beginning because I sort of saw it through his eyes. And then later on when I went, you know, when I was in college and then when I lived there after college, I think that in many ways I was just sort of continuing that, that love affair and also claiming it for my own, you know, finding places that, that were mine and not places that my dad had shown me. And I guess it, it, you know, it didn't surprise me that it was there that in 2004 I decided to take this leap and try to find a way to focus on food um, and leave graduate school. Uh, it didn't surprise me that that happened in Paris because it was a place that my dad loved so much. And my dad had died about a year and a half before that trip I took. And, uh, and I think I was finally in a place to be able to, to sort of come out of my grief enough to say my dad would support me in this decision. He would want me to, to follow my heart and um, find a way to, to work with food or bring food more into my life. And I'm in this place that he loved, and I think I felt bold enough to take that leap. What was that leap? Well, that leap was essentially saying, um, you know, at the time I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I had an internship uh, that was through the University of Washington, where I was a grad student at the time. I had an internship all set up for the following year. And so I technically had funding to go back and, and, and do my, my next year of graduate school. And I did. But the whole time I was extricating myself and I let my advisors know that I was leaving. But I really didn't know what I was going to do beyond this internship and, and this final year of grad school. And, um, and uh, you know, Essentially, the form that that leap took was that during this year that I was sort of pulling myself out of grad school, I started a blog called Orangette, and I really didn't know what I wanted from it in the beginning. I just wanted a place to write about food and to um, 
to really just uh, explore food in, in the way that I often did in emails to friends or, um, you know, in, in long letters home to my parents when I was living in France. And so I started writing the blog, and uh, it kind of took on a life of its own. Why did you choose that name, Orangeet? Well, the day that I sat down to start the blog, I think I had a number of different titles in mind. And uh, they were all taken, except a couple that I, I really thought were kind of ridiculous. And I happened to have a little baggie, um, a little plastic bag of Orangettes, which are candied orange peels that have been dipped in chocolate. I happened to have this little baggie of them sitting on my desk. I had brought them back from Paris. And I love them. I think they're they're delicious. And it seemed like a word that, you know, was easy to pronounce in English, I guess, a word that evoked my, my love for France, but, but, you know, wasn't unfriendly to, to English speakers. And, um, and yeah, I loved it. So I, I tried it and it wasn't taken. And there we go. That was my blog title. Now, when you started writing this blog, did you have any idea of the form that you were going to take? It's, it, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, form for a blog. I didn't have any idea. I really, I was just so giddy to be writing that I kind of let whatever happened happen. Um, I, I had I had loved to write for a long time. I wrote a lot in high school. I wrote a lot of poetry um, and attended a number of, of sort of special workshops and, and courses in poetry. But I think I had always been very afraid of writing. That it, um, I think I had always been afraid that the muses might leave me one day. And I, I hadn't written for a long time. And the blog was the first thing I'd written for myself in probably about seven or eight years. And I was so giddy that I just sort of let her rip. And, uh, and I, what I was going to say is that um, a couple of months into it, I wrote a piece about uh, baking some sourdough bread. And uh, I was using some sourdough starter at the time. And I remember thinking, writing this piece, you know, wow, I, you know, I, I could get through the Great Depression. I have this sourdough starter. I, I could feed a family. I can make bread. I'm so self-sufficient. And I kind of created this, you know, this funny little image of myself as a, you know, wife in the Great Depression. And I wrote this post about it. And I thought, wow, this post is doing something different from the others. It felt like it was telling a self-contained story. And I liked that. And I said, you know, how can I make this happen again? And you did make it happen again and again and again. <laughs> um, tell us about, you know, your, your choice of food and, and recipes. Uh, you have some really interesting um, takes on recipes because, you know, you have adapted from and you kind of like I'm used to or, or lots of us are used to say the joy of cooking or our places where recipes are essentially almost like uh, chemical experiments. You put in, you know, sodium bicarbonate and water and then fizz fizzes or it does whatever. Yours are not like chemical experiments, are they? I, yeah, I guess not. I, I think that um, I didn't really realize that I had a particular style of food that I liked until I started writing the blog. And I didn't really realize that I had any opinions about recipes at all. Um, but the more that I write it, the more I find that the, the type of food that I like is, is really simple. And I think very much influenced by my time living in California. Um, I, I really, I like to take good ingredients and not do a tremendous amount with them. Um, but just let them be what they are and let them be delicious. And, um, and it's always been important to me that, that my recipes really work. And so I try to, to really write them so that, um, 
you know, if I notice when I'm making a particular cake that the batter looks a little crazy at one point, that it looks like it's curdling, well, I'm going to let you know that it, it looks like it's curdling, but it's going to be fine. Because these are the things that are, I think there's nothing more frustrating than making a recipe and being terrified the whole time that you're doing it wrong or even worse, having it not work. And um, so when I, you know, when I write the blog and when I write about food, I really try to not only um, share my, my enthusiasm for, for whatever the dish in question is, but also write about it in a way that everybody can make it and everybody can share in that enthusiasm. Now, A Homemade Life is a, is a really fascinating book because it kind of tells, the book tells a, a couple of really interesting stories and, and poignant stories too. Could you talk about like collecting these stories and writing them and, and tying the food together? Because we see the food themes tie together with the story themes too and reflect them. Well, when I was writing it, uh, it, it really happened organically. When I write my blog and, and when I wrote this book, I almost always start with a recipe. I have a recipe in mind. And inevitably, there's either a memory that goes with that recipe or, or there's a reason that I've selected that recipe. It makes me think of something that's going on in my life right now or it makes me think of... Um, you know, of uh, something that's happening with the weather, even something as mundane as that. And from there, I kind of just um, roll with it and sort of see the story that unfolds from there. And, and when I say story, I mean like an autobiographical anecdote. I don't mean fiction. Um, when I wrote the book, I, I had a certain number of recipes that I really wanted to write about. And most of them were because um, they related to particular memories um, either of my childhood or of, of losing my father or of my courtship with my husband, who's been um, a big part of the story of the blog. Mm -hmm. So the, the book really unfolded as a collection of recipes that sort of pulled me along and, and kind of told me their stories. One of the things about that I really loved about this book was the way um, it recasts and redirects our attention in the, about the way we eat and, and what food is to us, how it, food is a part of our lives, because I think that, that our attitudes towards that are changing a lot. Yeah, I think that, I think that, you know, there, there are certainly a lot of people who, who just see f food as fuel, um, but I feel like that, that number is, is decreasing now. I think that, um, that this is a time when we have access to, to better food, to better raw ingredients than we ever have. And I, I feel like there are better restaurants now than, than have certainly ever existed during my lifetime. And there's a lot of excitement about food, um, a lot of education, and just a lot of really fun stuff happening. Great books coming out, fantastic restaurants. And um, I, I feel really lucky to be able to write about, about food at a time when it feels, it doesn't feel at all like an elite topic. It feels like something that that everybody, everybody has access to having a good life around the table. That's one of the things I really like about your recipes because they seem, when you, uh, the, the, re the ingredients are stuff you can get. You don't have to go to some really obscure store to find some really odd ingredient. And, and you present them in a fashion that makes them seem easy to cook and you kind of involve us in that. Could you talk about just the art of writing a recipe? It's, you know, there are many different ways of doing it. Um, for me, I, I would have a, rather have a recipe that 
maybe takes two pages to explain and that gives me every little detail than one that, that's quick and assumes too much knowledge on my part. I, I don't see myself as being in any way a cooking teacher or, or that sort of thing, but it's really important to me that anyone who has any sort of inclination to cook be able to pick up a recipe that, you know, that I've, that I've put into words and, and is able to have some success with it. So I, you know, I, I, I don't, I hope that I don't dumb recipes down too much, but I think that um, it's really, it's really important to me that, um, that, yeah, I think the kitchen should be a place where everybody can be successful. Now, you have kind of uh, some stuff that you want us to do before we kind of attack the book. And, uh, and just <laughs> tell us about your, your rules for, for uh, using a, 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 your book, as it were. Well, when I was writing the book, I, I kept thinking about that there were a few things, a few sort of bits of guidance that I kept wanting to write into the recipes. And um, I felt that it was going to be really redundant if I kept giving the same piece of information and in recipe after recipe. But I felt like I really needed to tell my readers how it is that I approach reading a recipe and how it is that I approach um, you know, certain little aspects of the kitchen. Like um, when I was a teenager, my dad told me once, you know, probably when we were doing something really mundane, like making egg salad, he told me that you, I should always clean up as I go in the kitchen. And for whatever reason, it, you know, it stuck with me. It made sense. I was like, you're right. I can wash this bowl now. And then, you know, after you and I are done enjoying our delicious egg salad sandwiches, I can just head off and have a lovely afternoon. It, it, it's these little things that I think, um, you know, cooking can be overwhelming. It can be messy. Um, it, it can seem like a big chore. But if we do little things like clean up as you go along or really take the time to read through the entire recipe before you start, your chances of success are a lot higher. It'll be less stressful and a lot more fun. Now... Could you talk about some of the, I guess what I'd call the formative recipes for you, the kind of the first things you started cooking yourself that informed the way you cook everything else? Wow, that's a good question. Um, let's see. You know, I've always been a big baker. Um, a couple of people have pointed out that yeah. there are a lot of sweets in this book. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of cake in this and book. There it's not is... a, no diet book here. No, no, it is not. Um <laughs> I've always been very much of a baker. My dad, um, both of my parents cooked. My dad was very much the savory cook in the house and very much the fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants kind of guy. And my mom was much more methodical and much more of a baker. So I really, I really, I, I think that m most of what I learned about the way that I cook today actually is from my mom. Um, her just sensibility with being able to look at a recipe and sort of picture what's going to happen with it. And, and I think that some of my early memories of the kitchen are from being in there with her. Um, certainly making a lot of cookies at Christmas time. She always made an elaborate assortment of things that actually the word cookie doesn't even do them justice. They were candies and bars and delicious little things half dipped in chocolate. And um, I really learned a lot about basic baking from her. I love some of the the simple recipes in your book, bread and chocolate. Yes. <laughs> I, that was one of those recipes where I thought, is this too simple? But it's so delicious. I think it has a place. It, it, it's something I, I, I got to confess, I've never heard seen it as a recipe before. I've heard the, I've heard the term, but to see it as a recipe, I go, oh, well, that's what 
that means. Right, right. I mean, how how delicious and how simple to tear open a little piece of baguette and stick some dark chocolate in it and eat it. But we don't think to do it very often. No, so. no, not often enough. Yes. Tonight they're making the one of the recipes that, that you call, I think, is one of your showpiece recipes, I would, I would call it, is the fennel salad. Tell us a little bit about that. It's actually a recipe that my husband introduced me to. He um, he learned about it from uh, the parents of a previous girlfriend, actually. So I, I really owe some of his exes for this. Um, it's it's a salad of shaved fennel, and um, I've I've seen other permutations for it using shaved mushroom as well, layering shaved mushroom in with the fennel, or sometimes shaved um, raw artichoke heart. Uh, in my case, what I really like to layer in with the shaved fennel are um, thin, thin pieces of Asian pear. And that kind of sweet, kind of very aromatic, almost spice of the Asian pear is really delicious next to the, the licorice-type flavor of fennel. And they have a similar crunch. And then you dress them with lemon and olive oil. Or if, if you're feeling fancy and you have something like truffle oil around, that's pretty amazing, too. And you shave some Parmesan over it. And it's really simple. It's one of those things where if your olive oil is not great, well, you might might pass on this recipe for now because you're really just tasting, you know, these four ingredients or these five ingredients. Well, tell me what's a great olive oil. Ooh, a great olive oil. Um, my gosh, that's a really difficult question. Um, I would say that in in my house we we don't use particularly expensive olive oils or particularly expensive anything. If I'm looking for a, a good sort of mid-price olive oil, I will tend to look for one that's Spanish actually. Even though we often think of olive oil being a Greek thing or an Italian thing, um, Spanish olive oils tend to be great bang for your buck. So that would be, a, in terms of general advice, I think you should always, if, if you can, smell and taste an oil if, if you are going to a, a little gourmet market where they'll let you do that. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know, trial and error. Lots, lots of people like different, you know, I, I, I in particular don't really like spicy, very sort of green olive oils, but some people do. So I think it's, it's really a matter of taste. What I think is a great olive oil you might not love quite as much. I've been speaking with Molly Weisenberg. Her new book is A Homemade Life, Stories and Recipes from the My Kitchen Table. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.